0: Good morning. It's a pleasure and a thrill to be here with all of you this morning. It's always a great joy, the greatest joy for me really, of anything that I do to be able to preach here in my home church. I love it greatly. As many of you know or might have guessed, my father has been the greatest influence on my life. He is indeed the smartest man that I've ever met, and he's my best friend. And yet, I'm always very happy. Whenever my father is gone. Because it gives me a chance to come here and preach. So I'm saddened that he's gone. But also happy for his absence. But it's beautiful to be here, is it not? In God's house on Sunday. This is a place for weary pilgrims. This is a place of rejoicing. So sit back in reverent leisure. In reverent relaxation. Because you have come home. This is what you were made for. This is not a means to some other end. This is the human end, this side of glory. You are here. When I started to work on this particular sermon, I had this strong aching in my gut, this weird feeling, a nauseous feeling. I said, oh no, I think I've preached this passage before. Although I knew that I had never approached this particular text from the angle, from the lens from the particular vantage point that I plan to preach from this morning. And even if I had preached the passage before, that wouldn't be that big of a deal. After all, if I couldn't remember, none of you would remember. And beyond that, as Flannery O'Connor once said, you may never have anything new to say, but there's always a new way to say it." it. may never be anything new to say, but there's always a new way to say it. Either way, I went back to find out if indeed I had preached this text before, And it turns out it was the first sermon that I ever gave, July 13th, 2014. I was preaching down at uh, Bill Spanger's church, Affirmation Presbyterian Church. I was nowhere near being a candidate for the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I had no qualifications to preach, so I I guess I did not preach that morning. I exhorted. I gave a, a glorified Bible study at his church as I was not ordained or licensed to preach the gospel. And I remember that day, although I don't remember the sermon particularly well, I remember being extraordinarily nervous. Now, I speak in front of people every single day, and yet I still get nervous every time that I preach. Not as bad as that day, though. I was quite nervous. And I remember I chose the text, 2 Corinthians five nineteen because I thought that that particular engagement of speaking at a church, that it would be a one-off. I thought that that would be the only time in my life that I ever preached. Exactly one year later, it turns out, I looked up through my old emails, July thirteenth, 2015, I started my first ever seminary class. Now, the reason I remember choosing 2 Corinthians 5.19 as my text that day was because I figured if this was going to be a one-off, the only time that I ever preached the gospel, I wanted a text where the gospel was as front and center as humanly possible. I needed a text where it wasn't submerged or latent, or hidden under a few rocks. You know, certain ministers will try to find the gospel hidden under every single verse of the Bible. I didn't want to have to do that much archaeological digging. I wanted a text where the gospel was just right there. And what better passage, I thought, than the one that contains what I often call the one-verse gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.19 is the gospel in short. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There's the gospel right there. Now today, I will not be focusing on that all-important and beautiful one-verse gospel. But I want to focus on the second part of the passage. So the first part of the passage is that part God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. But I want to focus on this. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal Through us. these are heavy words. And I'm going to approach those words, 2 Corinthians 5, particularly the second half of verse 19 and 20, under three headings today. The ministry, the waste, and ourselves. So the ministry, the waste, and ourselves. So first, the ministry. You look around, talk to anybody long enough, and you recognize that, We are an anxious lot of people. An anxious lot of people, are we not? We seem to be a generation of people whose lives are sort of punctuated with dread, with anxiety, with despair. Now, much of that is not anything that's germane to this particular generation, but it's part of the human condition. It's part of the fundamental landscape of our lives. You see, our lives are set against that backdrop of that relentless monotonous hourglass. You know the one where the top half keeps losing grains of sand and the bottom glass, part of the glass just keeps filling up as the days and years pass away as if they were a dream? And that's just not me being existentially dreadful. That's, those are the words of Moses. Our lives, they slip away as if they were a dream. They're here one day and gone the next. The older one gets the more those sort of metaphorical falling grains of sand, they seem to speed up, and they almost become audible. You can hear them hidden in the bottom of the hourglass. We all become like Captain Hook from Peter Pan, haunted by that alligator who swallowed that clock. Time was after him. After all, he was not forever young like Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, but he was old, he was dying, and that alligator chased after him time was running out for him. There's a lot we can learn from those old children's stories. We, just like Captain Hook, we try to silence the crock. We try to ignore the ticking clock. But oftentimes our indecisions, our sort of aimlessness, our lack of a deep purpose, that feeling that our time is slipping away and yet we haven't done anything or at least many things that truly matter. That feeling that we haven't done anything of lasting value, that stuff will keep you up at night. That stuff will haunt you as you get older. Some of you young people here today in the congregation, you might not feel that yet, but you'll feel it one day. You'll feel it. Is there anything worse than feeling that you are wasting your life? Those feelings can make the noise of the hourglass louder. The alligator seems to be right at your heels. Tick-tock, tick-tock. We find ourselves often in the position of T.S. Eliot's Proofrock. That poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, that's the poem that made me fall in love with poetry. The poem is most likely autobiographical, as Thomas Stearns or T.S. Eliot, he sort of transposed or transposes himself into J. Alfred Prufrock. T.S. Eliot becomes J. Alfred Prufrock. And if you're familiar with the poem, we know that Prufrock is a man that is paralyzed by indecision, by an inability to act, to move. He is, as the famous opening of the poem states, he is like the night sky, stretched out like a patient, etherized upon a table. He's drugged up, he can't move. Or to use another metaphor that he uses later in the poem, he is pinned down like a bug that is about to be dissected. Proofrock can't move. He can't act. He's like Bob Dylan in his song "Not Dark Yet." It's hard for me to quote Dylan without going into the Dylan voice, so I'll try. <laughs> so Dylan growls, "Shadows are falling, and I've been here all day. It's too hot to sleep, and time is running away. Feel like my soul has turned into steel. I've still got the scars." that the sun didn't heal. There's not even room enough to be anywhere. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there for proof rock. But he like us, he tries to play the numbers game. Right? We do this sometimes like, you know, if, if I was playing golf, I'd I'd be on like hole 10 right now. I still got a bunch of holes left to play. I'm only in the third quarter of life right now. We play the numbers. i got some longevity in my family. My grandfather lived pretty long. We play the numbers game. He tries, Prufrock, to silence the clock by telling himself he's still got time. And indeed, there will be time. Time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time. There will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create... And time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time for yet a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stairs. With a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin. My necktie, rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all already, known them all. I have known the evenings, morning, afternoons. I have measured out my life in coffee spoons, and I know the voice is dying with a dying fall." See, all of us are like rock. We're paralyzed, unable to act. Or we are those who do act, who live, who make decisions, but then we fret that those decisions don't have any ultimate value, that our work, that our labor is somehow meaningless. It's vain. It's nothing. Into that bleak existential condition comes this thunderbolt of a text. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What an amazing gift For a directionless creation. For a bunch of people who feel their lives are without purpose. God has given us a purpose and end. He's given us a share in the very work of his son. The king has entrusted you. With a task of incomparable importance. That means you are not just or even primarily a police officer. Or a teacher. Or a carpenter. Or a stay at home mom. You are first and foremost deputized as an ambassador for Christ. Your life then and vocation is of infinite importance. Far more valuable is your task than any sort of merely horizontal task, any fleeting temporal job that you may have or any fleeting temporal job that you may desire. You know the job that if I get that job, then my life will have meaning. Once I get to that stage of life, that's when my life starts to matter. You know that way that we talk in our heads? You've been given a big job. And as often as the case, with a big job comes big responsibilities. Our text says that we are ambassadors for Christ and God makes his appeal through you and I. You are the means through which God makes his appeal. His appeal to return to his eternal love. His appeal to reject the path of selfish egoism. To reject a life that tries to sustain itself on bread alone. That appeal is made through you and I. That's wild stuff. You are called to be a kingdom builder. And the only way to properly be a kingdom builder is to imitate the king. You are called to prepare, or to be prepared I should say... To give an answer when anyone asks of you of the hope that you have. right? right, 1 Peter 3. Always be prepared to give an answer when anyone asks of the hope that you have. Well, what does that mean? That means you better live a life of hope. Right? Nobody asks the joyless wallflower, the hopeless person. Hey, anxious, depressed, introverted, hiding in the corner person. Hey, joyless wallflower, tell me about the hope that's in you. No, that wouldn't happen. That would be nonsensical. It wouldn't make any sense. You have then been tasked with living a life that radiates joy. The joy that can only come from being freely redeemed by grace. You see, those that properly assess their own sinfulness, that properly assess the weight of the baggage, the weight that has been lifted, and obliterated by the world-creating and world-redeeming love of Christ, those types of people will be creatures of joy. They will be different. They will be creatures who long to be fed by the life-giving waters of God's word. They'll plant themselves there. They will meditate on it. They will be people who eagerly approach the feast of fellowship at the sacrament of the table. They'll long to eat of the bread of heaven. They will be a people who flock to church as weary pilgrims coming home to be refreshed as opposed to us legalistic Christians who do the Sunday thing so we can check the box of our own moral obligations, our own moral creations. Got to do the Sunday thing so God will be happy with me. These types of people will be different. The way or the attitude with which we do things, it matters. We are called in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be ministers of God's reconciling love. We are called to be ambassadors of his unflinching grace. And this is where things get a little tricky. Because we need to remember the grace of God is a long-suffering grace. Those are words we don't often like to hear. God's grace is long-suffering. Our rope of patience With others, it can be quite short. And yet God, in the face of his name being blasphemed, his honor being impugned, his image being dragged through the mud, what does he do? He waits and he waits. He waits till the sin of the Amorites was full, Genesis 15, 6. The wicked, child-abusing, child-sacrificing, sexually promiscuous Canaanites They were shown grace after grace after grace. I mean, think about this Cain himself, Cain, whose father walked and talked in the garden with God, that Cain kills his brother. He commits fratricide. And then the long suffering God of the cosmos allows him to build a city, to take a wife, to have children and grandchildren. He, although cursed, Cain was richly blessed. You and I, then, are called to lay down our self-righteous indignation. We are called to lay down even our justifiable grievances. We are called to forego being right. We're called to give up being correct. And as the injured party, we are called to wait in grace For the return of those who have abandoned us. You are called to wait in grace for the return of those who have abandoned you. You are called to wait with open arms and an open heart to receive all those who have besmirched you. Those who have lied about you. That family member who ruined your Thanksgiving that one time. Or even those people who ruined and trampled on your childhood. You have a job to be an ambassador of grace that waits with open arms. That's what the church is. That's at least what the church is called to be. The church is called to be home for wayward travelers and prodigal sons. The church is called to leave her doors open and to make sure that the love of God is still burning inside. The church is called to be home for the children of God who strayed away during their high school years, who have forsaken and forgotten who God was and who they are during their college years. It is called to be home for those who lost track of their purpose as they were out making a career, building a business, starting a family, attempting to shepherd the wind. The church is called to be a home where without haughtiness, without pride, They, with grace, wait for the children to come home, and then they greet them with a meal. Sit down, eat bread, drink wine, for you have come back home. The church waits, and it waits patiently. But as ministers of reconciliation, we are also tasked with seeking and saving the lost. We are not simply, we are to do this, but we are not simply to just accept those who come to us. But we are also to run after those who have run away from the Father's house. After all, that's what Jesus does. That is who Jesus is. Jesus is God in human flesh pursuing those who have abandoned the home. That's what Jesus is. He's God in flesh pursuing those that have abandoned the home. And like a good father that has a runaway child, he does not chase after the child to get even. He does not chase after his beloved children to be reimbursed. But he pursues for our good. Because he knows what we were made for. And he knows we will be empty. We'll be lost. We will be aimlessly adrift when we aren't home. Christ, he was amongst his brethren what he would have us be amongst our brethren. And that is a minister of reconciling love. And that brings us to our second point. Our second point, the waste. I had the privilege last week, I think it was last week, maybe it was two weeks ago, I lose track of time. Hourglass is speeding up on me too. I had the privilege of giving the commencement address at, uh, for the seniors going out at Chapel Field um, a week or so ago. And... This is part of a message that I gave to them the idea of the waste of the Christian life. So, we have been tasked with being these ambassadors of reconciling love. And this love that we are to display to one another, it's going to look small and insignificant in most instances. Oftentimes, the reconciling love that we pour out, it looks like it has been wasted. Like it's bearing no fruit, like it's inefficient. It doesn't work. I need to do something bigger than just love. It might look like a waste of our time. After all, you know how stupid the world thinks you guys are all right now. You're, you, you, this is your weekend, Sunday morning, and you're wasting your time coming here to pray to a God who disappeared 2,000 years ago. And not only that, you're wasting your money. Right, we're in a recession right now. Things are expensive and you're giving your money to the church? That looks like waste. That's ridiculous to the world. They will mock you. Could anything be more stupid? Our grace, our love will look like a waste many times. It'll look like a waste of our time. It looks like a waste of our finances. It will look like our Old Testament text today from Zechariah chapter 4. If you remember... The account of Zerubbabel, just read in Zechariah chapter 4, Zerubbabel, he was the governor of Judah in the immediate aftermath of the Babylonian captivity. Now, the mayor of Judah would have absolutely zero power at this time. The mayor of Pine Bush has more power than the mayor of Judah after the Babylonians have just sacked the city, destroyed the blessed temple, deported the people with fish hooks in their mouths across the desert. He comes back and he's the mayor of Judah. And what is he doing? In Zechariah chapter 4, we see one of the most beautiful images in Scripture, one of my favorite images. We see Zerubbabel standing there over the wreckage of this once proud and glorious city, God's special city. And what is he doing? He's got surveying equipment out, he's got a plumb line in his hand. He's measuring the place where he's going to lay a cornerstone for a new place of worship. I mean, how absolutely minuscule, insignificant, and even stupid that act would have seemed. What a waste. How stupid, how foolhardy, Zerubbabel, you're spitting into the wind. You're trying to drain the ocean with a thimble. What is the real world change, Zerubbabel, that could possibly be cashed out by you putting down a cornerstone for a house of worship in the midst of this devastation? Why are you wasting your time, Zerubabel? I mean, Zerubabel, have you heard about the inflation? Have you seen our destroyed infrastructure? Have you seen the riots in the cities? The Dow Jones is in turmoil. Zerubabel, I just lost twenty-five percent on my four hundred one k. It's gone. I can't even look at it. It's going to give me agita. Gas prices are through the roof, Zerubabel. We don't have any faith in our governmental institutions anymore. Are our elections safe anymore, Zerubabel? And you're out here trying to build a temple? And this is the word of the Lord that came to Zerubbabel in Zechariah 4 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And out of the ash heap of Judah, a fire, a massive conflagration of hope for the weary and salvation for the weak, for the lost has spread from Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the cosmos. You see, what the world sees as useless, laying a cornerstone for a place of worship, God often sees as the most valuable. What the world sees as useless, God often sees as essential. I mean, the world sees bread and wine. We, through the eyes of faith, see the body and blood of the incarnate God, and eat of food that will satisfy forever. And drink of the waters of heaven. What the world sees as absolutely useless. God says is the most essential. It's where I will meet you. I mean, listen to these oh so famous words that we just read from Matthew 26. And I'll remind you that gospel lesson that we read today. This takes place hours. Not days, not weeks, not months. Hours before Christ will enter his passion. This is hours before he will be beaten, lacerated, and nailed naked to a tree. This will be hours before the face of the Father will turn away from him, and all of the wrath will be poured out on Jesus. Hours before that, this happens. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I mean, if we were there, what would we say? Hey, Mary, hold on, hold on. What are you doing? What a waste. All that expensive perfume down the drain. I mean, if she had just sold the perfume, invested in an index fund with compound interest and dividends, do you have any idea what that perfume would be worth? In a lovely book, a contemporary artist by the name of Makoto Fujimura he wrote this book called Art and Faith. He writes one of my favorite lines that I've ever read. He writes this. The only earthly possession Christ wore on the cross was the very aroma of the perfume Mary poured upon him. The Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus all could smell her perfume. Christ called her act of devotion beautiful. What the disciples deemed a waste, Jesus deemed the most necessary. Christ took to the cross with him nothing but the fragrance, the aroma of that wasteful outpouring of love. And that should really cause us to pause a second and think about the allocation of our time, the allocation of our gifts. We are to be ambassadors of reconciling love, the reconciling love of God. And we are to be wasteful with our grace and wasteful with our love. We are to pour it out frivolously, wastefully. And let me tell you, those acts of grace, those acts of love, they're going to make you feel like Sisyphus. Like you are doing all this work to be gracious to that family member who just seems to keep taking advantage of you. You don't understand, Justin. Every time I do something nice for this person, they just turn it on me. They don't appreciate it. It's going to make you feel like Sisyphus, like you are endlessly pushing that rock up the hill only to have it wastefully crash back down again. But we are told through the spirit, those rocks rolling down the hill, they are being assembled and they are building the eternal city. You just don't have the perspective to see it. I don't have the perspective to see it. But those rocks are being built. They're being used. All of life, we must remember, all of life is grace all of life is extra existence is of a purely gratuitous nature right the givenness of things the fact that things are is an indescribable mystery and a gift and we must remember this because we are prone to forget that our god the god of the bible is beyond existence itself right our god is beyond existence marilyn robinson she wrote that If God is the author of existence, what can it mean to say that he exists? There is a problem in vocabulary. He would have to have a character before existence, which the poverty of understanding can only call existence. Well, whatever existence is, is pure grace. It's pure gratuitousness. Everything that God does, it adds nothing to himself. It's all extra. So we then must emulate that type of God by being creatures of wasteful grace. You see, what seems like foolishness to the world actually in reality sheds a light on the life of the divine. Gracious outpouring of love sheds light on who God is in and of himself. What we might call theologically ontologically. That's who God is. He's a God of pure grace. And that brings us... To our final point, our final point, ourselves. So we've been tasked with being ambassadors of lavish, seemingly wasteful grace. And we participate, the Apostle Paul tells us, in the restoration of the cosmos, the restoration of others to God as God somehow makes his appeal through us. Now we can only do this as those who have been forgiven. What a remarkable gift forgiveness is. When you think about forgiveness, forgiveness cannot be earned. One cannot go to the past and undo what is done. So true forgiveness in every instantiation of it is always a gift of grace. But forgiveness runs even deeper than that. Forgiveness is more profound than we often understand. Especially when we consider forgiveness in light of our passage. When we consider in light of the fact that we are ministers of reconciling love. John Ames, a congregationalist minister in the novel Gilead, I've mentioned the novel a handful of times from the pulpit because I love it. He says, to be forgiven is only half the gift. The other half is that we also can forgive, restore and liberate. And therefore, we can feel the will of God enacted through us, which is the great restoration of ourselves to ourselves. What a wonderful gift God has given us, the ability to forgive, not just to be forgiven. We're always thankful for that, but a great gift that God has given us the ability to forgive. And by doing so, we restore ourselves to ourselves What do we mean by that? What I mean by that is we are a people made in the image of God and God is pure forgiveness. So we are indeed made for forgiveness. To fail to forgive is to be subhuman. To hold a grudge is to be bestial. You know, there is nothing manly or tough or life-giving about withholding forgiveness. Indeed, it's the least manly thing that you can do. Indeed, there is nothing more manly, more dignifying, more beautifying to the self and to others than to forgive them. Especially those that don't deserve it. Paul tells us that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So if we are going to receive this free gift by which God allows us to reconcile ourselves to ourselves, we need to have God in us. We need to have God in us, or we will not be able to liberate others and liberate ourselves. And the sign that God is in us, here's the sign, is that we show grace to others. To be reconciled to God means to be brought back into his presence, right? That's what reconciliation means. I come back into his presence. And to be in the presence of God is to be transformed into his likeness, and he is pure forgiveness. There's no being reconciled to God without becoming a creature of grace. There are no creatures of God who are not creatures of grace. So we are called to be prophets of reconciliation. And as Flannery O'Connor once wrote, anyone who is a prophet, well, they need someone to prophesy to. Can you just imagine John Vance saying those words? I mean, this, it sounds like John Vance or Flannery O'Connor could have written those words, right? Anyone who's called to be a prophet has got to have somebody to prophesy to. And let me tell you, we always have someone to prophesy to. We need to be prophets to ourselves. Daily to tell ourselves the story of grace. That we might be transfigured into figures of grace. You only are transfigured into the things you stare at. The things you meditate upon. Meditate upon the story of grace so that you might become a creature of grace. We need to become prophets like the young boy Tarwater from O'Connor's novel, The Violent Bear It Away. Prophets who warn the children of God and ourselves of the terrible speed of God's mercy. It's my favorite line from that novel. It's lovely. O'Connor's young boy, this young prophet Tarwater says we need to be prophets who warn Others in ourselves of the terrible speed of God's mercy. It's not what you're expecting to hear there. Because prophets are people who, what do they do? They warn people of the terrible speed of God's judgment. But O'Connor gets this right. She says, prophets warn people of the terrible speed of God's mercy. And that's because God's mercy burns. God's mercy singes. It scalds. But it only burns away what is non-essential. The flames of God love, it eats up and eradicates the old dying man. And it purifies us. It hardens us. It fits us for the eternal weightiness of glory. See, the New Testament is very, very clear that this existence that we are in right now, it's wispy. It's light. It's airy. It's ephemeral. But God's presence... Glory is said to be weighty. It's substantial. It's heavy. And to make it in that land, you must forsake your softness and put on some muscle mass. You need to become weightier. You need to become heavier. Paul, he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, right before our passage today, he writes these words. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So we might ask ourselves, how then do we prepare ourselves for the weightiness, the thickness of glory? Well, if we listen to Paul, the way that we prepare ourselves for the weightiness of glory is we act as ministers of the gracious, reconciling love of God now. And that is because the act of showing grace is enlarging. It's like training a muscle. You need to tear the muscle. You need to rip it so that it might grow back, be rebuilt bigger the next time. Just ask Jesse David. He'll tell you about it. (laughs) Showing grace to those who don't deserve it, it hurts. It's like running into a fire. It hurts, but it will only burn the parts that need to be burned away. It's part of sanctification that will heal the one you show grace to, but it will also harden you and prepare you for glory. That's what showing grace to those that don't deserve it does for you. It hardens you, prepares them for glory. Baron Friedrich von Hugel is a name that I'm fairly certain not many of you are familiar with. Some of you might come up to me afterwards. I was just reading Baron Friedrich von Hugo this morning. Um, But I guess not. My guess would be. He was an Austrian Roman Catholic theologian who died in the 1920s. And he was a huge influence on the writer that I've already quoted a few times today, Flannery O'Connor. In his work, The Mystical Elements of Religion, von Hugo writes this. Gold, when once it has been fully purified... "...can be no further consumed by the action of fire, however great it be. Since fire does not, strictly speaking, consume gold, but only the dross which the gold may chance to contain. So also with regards to the soul, God holds it so long in the furnace until every imperfection is consumed away. And when it is thus purified, it becomes impassable. So that it thus purified, if it were kept in the fire it would feel no pain. Rather, would such a fire be to it a fire of divine love, burning on without opposition, like the fire of the eternal. See, showing grace is hard, but it's only hard for the old man, the old self, the man who is passing away. So what do you want to do? You want to pour out all of your grace to empty the tank that you might be refilled, but this time you are fitted to hold more grace. Grace enlarges, because grace is a restoration of ourselves to ourselves, to our true selves, to those who can dwell in the presence of God. Praise be to the God of love, who was in the person of Jesus Christ, reconciling the world to himself. May the appeal that he makes through you and I, May it be recognized here in Orange County, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, until he comes again in glory and bestows upon his children the eternal weight of glory. Amen.